as I go through studying Revelation, I continue to reevaluate everything, and, and I encourage you to do the same. Never just assume you know. Just because you've studied something, be it a book of Scripture or a passage, a verse, a concept, a, a theological paradigm, don't ever settle. Keep asking. I fully expect ten years from now, should we be here, should the Lord tarry, that I'm going to be learning things I didn't realize when we're going through this right now. And this, this time through Revelation for me has been a revelation in many ways. So many things that I've seen I never saw before. A few of those I'll share with you tonight. Revelation chapter 11, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn in your Bible to the 11th chapter now. And we're still in the second parenthetical pause of the book of Revelation, that interlude, that pause, where we're, we're not backing up, we're not uh, wandering off from the chronological flow, but we're paused as John is being shown more things that need to be fit together and put into this picture. And, and actually, chapter 12 is part of that as well. And we'll see these things, and they're so important to our understanding of the big picture and of what God is really trying to do here. But Revelation 11... In this pause is a, an intriguing chapter. It is highly significant and there is widespread disagreement as to what it means. Especially, and this is going to shock you, especially among those who take the book of Revelation symbolically. They can't seem to agree on what this means. See, that's the problem with a metaphorical approach to the Bible or an allegorical approach. It all depends on your tradition. It all depends on your mood. It all may depend on what you had for lunch. I mean, if, if, there's, if it's all symbolical, you can make it say or mean anything. Warren Wiersbe says about Revelation chapter 11, if we spiritualize this passage and apply any of it to the church, we will be in serious trouble. And that's the thing. People have done that. Respected scholars and commentators have have taken this chapter and just ripped it up with their symbolizing. Some say that the two witnesses, and there are two witnesses that show up in this chapter. We'll look at them. We'll talk about them. Some say the two witnesses are the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or, Or others say, no, no, the two witnesses are the church and the Bible. And they will jump through all kinds of hoops to try and and, and make this seem possible. The church and the Bible, you know, we can be so egocentric. That's the other problem with being symbolical with these things is, is you make it all about you. And while the love of God is for you, this is all about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus, not the revelation of Rick. I know you're welcome. Some, I, I read one reputable scholar, I had picked up his commentary because I had heard uh, along the grapevine that it's one of the real good ones, and there have been a few historical elements that I've been able to draw from it, but man, this, I'm not going to name the guy because I would give him bad press, but he's come along and he interprets the entirety of chapter 11 and what happens with the two witnesses here, he interprets it, interprets it as the fate of the witnessing church. Now, this is an allegorical picture of the witnessing church. The problem is that perspective is way out of order because where is the church at this point in the Revelation? We're in heaven. We're not here. We are irrelevant to what's happening at this time in this season and what John is receiving from Jesus. We're tucked away in heaven with Jesus on our heavenly honeymoon absent from earth since chapter 3. 
Or since chapter 4, verse 1, when Jesus says, come up here and off we go. And some will say, well, but, but Rick, isn't this section parenthetical? Yes, but parenthetical doesn't mean allegorical. Understand that. Just because it's a pause or an interlude doesn't mean it's not literal in what is being described and in what is happening. Follow the flow. Stay the course. These are still actual events in the program of the revelation of Jesus. John is doing some forward-looking in this chapter, and he will do some backtracking to get some explanations. And as we get these explanations, we'll see where we are and understand even better, I think, what's happening on the earth at this point in the tribulation. But just remember this, in chapter 11, things are as they appear. I like what John Walvoord said about this. He said the great city of chapter 11, verse 8, is identified as the literal city of Jerusalem. The time periods are taken as literal time periods. The two witnesses are interpreted as two individuals. The three and a half days are taken literally three and a half days. The earthquake is an actual earthquake. The 7,000 people slain are 7,000 individuals who die. (laughs) The death of the witnesses is literal, as are their resurrection and their ascension. So again, I encourage you, read this chapter and accept that it is what it is. It may be wild, it might be fantastic at times, but it is straight up truth. This is what will happen. These things will take place. So, chapter 10, which we studied last week, is somewhat of an introduction on into chapter 11, because chapter 10 is all about the subject of ongoing prophecy. Remember what John does in chapter 10? He takes the little little book, and he eats the little book, and it's sweet to the taste, but it's bitter in his stomach. And those speaking to John say, get it out. You got to get it out. You got to throw it up if you have to, John. Get the word out. You must prophesy again. Well, then we come into chapter 11 and it's all about prophecy and about these two prophets. And we will see this tie together of Old Testament Hebrew prophecy that is fulfilled even in this. It's, It's remarkable. Let's get to it. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod, John writing, like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And after that, as Jesus said... After the 42 months, from this point, 42 months forward, how long is 42 months? Three and a half years. So from this point forward, for the next three and a half years, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. And as Jesus said, the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Get this, it's important. The times of the Gentiles are not fulfilled at the rapture of the church. They're not fulfilled. They're not over when the tribulation begins. They're not when Antichrist makes or breaks his covenant. They're not even fulfilled at the abomination of desolation. No, based on what we're reading right here and what we'll see tonight, the times of the Gentiles run straight through the tribulation to the coming of Jesus Christ. They are over when Jesus comes. Well, how do you know that? Because the holy city is going to be tread underfoot for three and a half years from this point forward. So it just continues this this trampling, this trashing of Jerusalem. 
for 42 months that are described here through the last three and a half years through what Jesus called the Great Tribulation, which we've assigned to that that last three and a half years of the seven. The whole seven is the Tribulation. But the last three and a half, man, that is the Great Tribulation. And the times of the Gentiles run all the way to the coming of Christ. I'll show you more of why I believe that in a moment here. But during this time of God's wrath, the trampling of Jerusalem is the world's response. It's amazing. God pouring out punishment and the world gets more and more rebellious and embittered against all things godly, against Jerusalem. And John right now in chapter 11 is at the midpoint. And by the way, that's one of the learning curve things for Rick that I realized and I've changed my thinking on this even since we started a few months ago. Revisiting this and thinking and and forcing myself to work through it and I may need those little half sheet handouts back. Because there's something I said on that that I have changed my perspective on. I believe we are at the midpoint here. What I said before was that we're at the midpoint of the tribulation. The first three and a half years are the sealed judgments. It's contained in chapter 6. And then with the beginning of the trumpet judgments, we head into the second three and a half years. That can't be. That actually what I think now is that the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, go all the way up to the blowing of the sixth trumpet. And then we're at the midpoint. And then something happens. And then we had it, not we, but but then the world heads into the final three and a half years of tribulation, which begins with the blowing of the seventh trumpet and then the bold judgments and Armageddon and, and all the rest. Now, the sixth trumpet is blown and after that, not after the sixth seal is broken, but after the sixth trumpet is blown, that's, that's the point, that's the, the midpoint of the tribulation. Why do you think this, Rick? Because something big happens. Look at chapter 11, verse 14. It says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Now we're going to get into that actually next Wednesday. We're going to look at those things and think about verses 15 and and on. But this time stamps what's happening here. The sixth trumpet is blown, which is the second woe. Remember, the three woes are the final three trumpets. The fifth trumpet is the first woe. The sixth trumpet is the second woe. And then the seventh trumpet is called the third woe. Well, this is the end. The second woe is passed right here. And the third woe is coming quickly. Someone might say... Whoa. What does that mean? We have a time stamp here. That the sixth trumpet, the second woe, after this point, there remains 42 months of trampling. There remains three and a half years from this point forward. We have to be at the midpoint of tribulation. And here, back at the beginning of chapter 11... John is told, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Why is he told to get up? I wonder if perhaps John is still doubled over with a bitter belly. Still having a stomach ache. Maybe he's down on on his knees. And he's told, you must prophesy again. And now he's told, get up. 
Get up, John. And note, it says that someone said get up. Well, who's the someone? It's irrelevant. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point is that John needs to get up and do this, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And he's given a rod to make some measurements. Why? Well, the rod is a reed. This is a a reed that they would use to measure that could be found all along the banks of the Jordan River. Uh, Kind of a bamboo-ish type of a reed, and it would grow anywhere from 10 to 20 feet in length, so you could use this truly to make measurements. And so he's handed this rod, this reed, and we've seen this before. Well, if you've studied Scripture, Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah had a vision of a man measuring Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel saw a man with a rod, a reed, measuring the millennial temple. And those measurements are huge. And Revelation 21, verse 15, after this, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, New Jerusalem, and its gates and its wall. What's the deal with all these measurements? Think of a surveyor. Perhaps you want to know what your property line is at home. And so you call in someone to survey it and find out and tell you where the actual property is. This is the measurement of the things that belong to God. I want you to measure these things. These are mine, the Lord says. What? The temple. This is what we'll call the tribulation temple. And yet, the Lord's saying, that's mine. And the altar, that's mine. And the worshipers, they're mine. More on them on Sunday. But what you do here is you forget about the court of the Gentiles. Go ahead and measure all the things. These things belong to me. These things are under my protection. These things are my possession. But don't worry about the court of the Gentiles. Leave that out. You know what the court of the Gentiles is? On the temple complex, the court of the Gentiles is where all the money changers were. When Jesus came into the temple selling all their doves and pigeons and sheep and making a mess of things and making a mockery truly of faith and of trusting in God. And the people would come in and the Gentiles were, that's where all this selling was going on. And so the Gentiles looking at Judaism would be saying, oh, we get it. It's just like the commercialism of the world. This is about making money. That's all this is really for. Jesus was incensed. You are turning my father's house into a den of thieves, a den of robbers, he said. And he made that whip of, of cords and, and drove them out, turned over the tables. You will not do this to dad's house. He was so angry. Part of the reason I think he was angry is the Gentiles had a place they could come at the temple. So they could see what God was doing. So they could have a, a perspective of what God was up to with Israel, God was allowing them to come close and at least see inside. See what was up. The court of the Gentiles. But now, they're trampling grounds. Leave them out, John. Don't measure those. These are left to, and what does he say? These are for the nations to tread underfoot for 42 months. 42 months. Where else have we heard about Jerusalem being tread underfoot. See, Jesus said that, Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let me point out to you, when it says nations in verse 2, leave out the court, 
which is outside the temple. Do not measure it. It's been given to the nations. The word nations is ethnos. The word Gentiles, when Jesus says they will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, is ethnos. Same word. Gentiles and nations. Ethnos. Until the times of the Gentiles, the ethnos, are fulfilled, Jesus says. So this trampling is to the very end of the times of the Gentiles. In Romans 11, verse 25, Paul said, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles, the ethnos, has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. And that point of the, of the salvation of Israel is at the end of the tribulation. Oh, trust me, Israel is being saved all through the tribulation. And mass numbers of Jews are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, partially because of the two witnesses we'll see here tonight. But it's at that moment when, when it all comes together, it all makes sense, and all Israel is saved, and when the fullness of the ethnos of the nations has come in. And so again, this means that the times of the Gentiles run straight through the tribulation right up to the return of Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom that's promised to Israel. But at this midpoint, something happens that kicks off this final trampling, this, this wild rebellion on earth, in Jerusalem, outside the temple. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 reads, And he, that is Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one Shavuah, one seven. But in the middle of the seven... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations, one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's weird prophetic language. Even now, if you don't know the background and what that means, you hear that and go, that's weird. Something's going to happen here that makes destruction on the wing of abomination. What is this? Jesus explains. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days have been cut short. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. How short? 42 months. Three and a half years. Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation that takes place right here at the midpoint of the tribulation. One more place to read and hear from here, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a key passage. In fact, these three, Daniel 9, 27, Matthew 24, 15 and following, and Second Thessalonians chapter 2, are key passages to understanding what's taking place in this trampling that is mentioned at the beginning of Revelation chapter 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. This is Antichrist, the son of destruction or the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and this is what he does. Here's the abomination of desolation. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. I love the fact that here Paul says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? How many of you know about and can explain the abomination of desolation so well that you can sit down with another person and and lay it out for them? You know what? Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, don't you remember? We were talking about this. You know how long Paul was at Thessalonica the year before? Three Sabbaths. That means that in three Sabbaths, the apostle had already gone over the abomination of desolation. I, I wasn't going to do this, but I, I got to share something with you. I ran across an article this morning, and it's early in the teaching, so I still feel like I've got plenty of time. This is in uh, Prophecy News Watch, and it was really well written. This this article it was actually from a pastor's blog, and I, I want to read just a couple of excerpts from it that I that I jotted down here. He says the prevailing mindset of many Bible-believing pastors today is that eschatology, or the study of future things, is not only separate from the preaching of the gospel, but it detracts from it. They maintain that our task of fulfilling the Great Commission excludes teaching on prophecy, which they believe only confuses believers and stirs up unwelcome controversy. He says, this represents a myopic way of viewing both the commands and the teachings of Jesus who highlighted eternal life as the result of belief in him and commanded his followers to watch for his return. Jesus did not die on the cross just so we would have a terrific Christian life in this uncertain world filled with sorrow and heartache. He sacrificed his life so that we could receive eternal life with physical and imperishable bodies. Reign with him in a spectacular kingdom and spend a glorious eternity with him. Amen? That's what he died for. He goes on and says, it's the specifics of our hope of heaven that encourage us each morning as we step out of bed to face a daunting and evil world. It's the details of the Lord's return and our joyous eternity in heaven that comfort us in the midst of sorrow and provide bright hope for tomorrow. Another excerpt here. Jesus stressed at least two things after his resurrection. First, he emphasized how he had fulfilled prophecy in Luke 24. And in doing so, he instructed his followers about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. And then he told his followers to proclaim the gospel, the good news. The good news is not just that Jesus died for you so you could be happy. He died for you to wash away your sins that you might live for him in eternity. And eternity is worth looking forward to. That's the whole idea. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. Great quote. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the, uh, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And he's right on. 
Our study, our understanding of Bible prophecy is so vital because it energizes our faith. It keeps us looking forward. It calls us to be heavenly minded people. Not stuck in the day to day of the earth. And the more heavenly minded we are, the more effective we're going to be in this world. Well, Paul, in his three Shabbats, three Sabbaths, three weeks, or at the outside, five weeks, if you go a week on either side, five weeks at the most in Thessalonica, taught them about the abomination of desolation, taught them about the revelation of Jesus Christ, explained to them what was coming prophetically. That was part of Bible 101 for the church at Thessalonica. And now he's saying, do you remember we talked about these things, that Antichrist is going to come, he's going to go into the temple of the Lord, he's going to establish himself and claim to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. It's an abomination to God. It desolates the temple because it defiles it. And at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, three and a half years in, Antichrist finally will play his hand. We're going to talk more about Antichrist when we get to Revelation 13. But he's going to stand up. He'll be a great world leader. First three and a half years, Antichrist, Antichrist. He's our, they're going to, not going to call him Antichrist. They won't know at that point. He's not going to have little devil horns and a tail. But he'll be a, 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 an admired world leader. Well spoken. Great with words. A fantastic orator and politician. And people will be snowed by him. But three and a half years in, he puts all his cards on the table. He shows up. He says, and by the way, I'm God. Really? He defiles the temple. All Israel at that point, that's the break point for the Jewish people. You mess with the temple? Now all bets are off. Now, now this is this is bizarre. He's going to go in. He's going to declare himself to be God. He will demand to be worshipped. And all of his politics will be right out the door. Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 says, Then the king, speaking of Antichrist, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation, which is the tribulation, is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. So understand that. The abomination of desolation, if you know nothing else, it's simply Antichrist going into the temple and defiling it by claiming to be God Himself. That's it. And it does defile the temple. It desolates the sanctuary. And when does it happen? At the midpoint of the tribulation. Let me ask that again. When does this happen? At the midpoint of the tribulation. You can say three and a half years in, 42 months in, 1260 days, whatever you want to say. But it's right at this midpoint that he stands up and he declares ownership of the world, himself to be God, and he wants to be worshipped. And then something else happens, or actually has happened, that sets this rebellion further on fire, but we have to back up now 1,260 days to the start of the tribulation. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Now, someone might say, wait a minute, he says, I will grant authority. That means that's future. Yeah, but it's future to John. As John's receiving the revelation, God's saying, this is what's going to happen. That's why, again, we are in, we're in a parenthesis here, a pause. Here's what's going to happen leading up to all of this. I will grant authority to my two 
witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1260 days is three and a half years. Same as 42 months. By the way, it's worth noting, 1260 days is the time frame always used when he's talking about the first half of the tribulation. When he's referring to the second half, he says 42 months. Or a time times and half a time. So, when it's the first half, it's 1260 days. This is happening. I believe the two witnesses are during the first three and a half years. Okay? So he's looking back and he's saying this is what has been taking place up to the midpoint and we will get to the midpoint with the two witnesses here in just a few minutes. But are you with me? I don't want to lose you on this. Abomination of desolation happens at the midpoint. The trampling of Jerusalem. Leave out the court of the Gentiles because it's going to be trampled underfoot for the last three and a half years. So that's where we are. We're standing on this midpoint precipice. But now, now what, what the Lord has to do with John is take him back to talk about the two witnesses and bring him up to this midpoint, which we'll get to by verse 7. Alright? With me. Anyone not with me? Raise your hand if, I, if I've completely confused you. Or just look confused. Okay, that's, that's too hard to count. So we go back, and we're talking now about, well, two witnesses. Check this out, verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, my two marteo, or my two martus. It's where we get the word martyr. That's important. They're my two witnesses. They're, they're my witnesses because of who they are, but also because of what they do. And by the way, a martus is that. A martus is not just someone who claims to be a martus. They're a martus because they testify. So they both testify and they are witnesses. They are martus. They will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So now we're looking back. Again, first three and a half years. First three and a half years. The witnesses are unquestionably two men. They are not the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are not Israel and the church. They are not some other symbolic iteration of whatever someone wants to make up that fits their own denominational tradition. They are simply two martus, two witnesses, two men who stand up and begin to prophesy. They are dressed in the latest fashion from Saxcloth Fifth Avenue. <laughs> Sackcloth is the style of prophets who are calling for repentance. Prophets who are in mourning. And so they're in this place. They they show up and from the very beginning of their prophesying, they are dressed in robes of repentance. They are dressed to mourn over the state of the world and the state of all things as this tribulation period now is getting underway. So we're all the way back. These guys show up as the first seal is being broken. As Antichrist comes riding in and all these things start to come down, these guys are already there and they begin to prophesy and they're calling for repentance, which is what we saw in the entire first half of the tribulation. Repent! The 144,000 witnesses are cut loose. They're going out saying repent. The two witnesses now are saying repent. God's call for repentance is all happening in these first three and a half years. And note, there are two witnesses just as Torah law requires. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
And Jesus even confirmed that. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. What's going on with the two witnesses? Listen, they're bringing confirmation before condemnation. Confirmation before condemnation. That is, as they preach repentance, they are in their forty-two in, the, in their twelve hundred and sixty days of preaching. They are confirming either those who will repent or those who will not before condemnation comes, which God always offers time to repent first. He doesn't just go straight to the condemnation. By the way. As we have seen many times, and I think this is a fascinating element of Bible prophecy, oftentimes it is verified twice. Prophecies don't just happen once. They, they happen once in an immediate sort of fulfillment, a short term, but then there's a long term often, a long term fulfillment of the very same prophecy. And we see that in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What does he mean by that? Keep your finger here and go back to Zechariah chapter 2. I lied to you. Zechariah 4. Zechariah chapter 4. I'm picking it up in verse 1. Remember, these two have been called the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now track this through with me carefully. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 1. When the angel, or then the angel who was speaking with me, and by the way, the angel here, I believe, is none other than Jesus. This is the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. This is the, the pre-incarnate appearance. And it's one of many, many times throughout the Hebrew Scriptures where God shows up in the flesh. Well, who is God in the flesh? Jesus. So I believe we're talking about a Christophany and Jesus is the one who's bringing this prophecy and don't be weirded out by that because remember what Peter said. The prophets made careful searches and inquiries trying to figure out when the Spirit of Christ within them told them about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So we know Christ was talking to the prophets. So here we go. The angel, the Malach, who was speaking with me, returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, which of course Zechariah would understand what the lampstand was, with its bowl on top of it. And its seven lamps along with its seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. And also I see two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. And then I said to the angel who was speaking with me saying, what are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And Zechariah sounds a lot like John. See, the prophets, the prophets are only amazing in as much as they repeat what they've been told. They're not anything special in and of themselves. You know, I can't wait to meet guys like Zechariah, but Zechariah was only special because he told us what God told him. He's just a mouthpiece. He's just an instrument. So are you. So are you in this world. Instruments of the Lord, mouthpieces, messengers. 
We just bring what God has given us to bring. And so he says, I don't understand what I'm seeing here. Now, it's not the lampstand that bewilders Zechariah. It's all the additional items that are attached to it that are unusual. The lampstand that, that stood there in the holy place in the temple. Every Jew would understand the lampstand, would know what it looked like, would have a, a picture of it. They would know it had seven branches going up and one main shaft and seven lamps that each had oil in them and the oil lamps were kept burning in the holy place by the priests. They all understood that. But what's going on here? There's a bowl suspended above this menorah. That's unusual. There's seven spouts on each lamp to receive oil from the bowl for a total of 49 spouts coming out of the lamps. That's unusual. There are two golden pipes that are feeding golden oil into the bowl, and we see that down in verse 12. He hasn't even mentioned that one yet. He's just overwhelmed by this bizarre picture of this lampstand with all these accoutrements. And the two golden pipes are tapped into two leafy olive branches, each running from two olive trees. And none of that stuff was present in the tabernacle or in the temple. It was just the lampstand. So he's looking at this, and, and that's why he says, I don't, I don't understand what I'm looking at here. What's the point? What's this thing? And the angel of the Lord makes it clear the vision is a picture of the endless flowing power of the Holy Spirit because he says in verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What a great picture. Zerubbabel, he was the governor of, of, of Jerusalem. And Joshua was, was the high priest. And they came back with Ezra and the first set of exiles who came back from Babylonian captivity. So this is around 535 or so BC. They all came back into Jerusalem, which was, had been decimated by Babylon. They began to start to build houses. They, they lay a foundation for the temple. And they're there. And Zechariah is the prophet. Haggai is also prophesying at the time. But you've got Zerubbabel and Joshua, and these guys are in charge. That would be a tough place to be in charge. Easily discouraged. And God gives Zechariah this vision to tell to Zerubbabel, hey, listen, you're not going to do this in your power. It's not you. Think about the the lampstand and the oil and the olive trees and this endless supply of flowing golden oil, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I love the verse, perhaps you do too, one of the greatest reminders when life gets tough. I can't make this work. I can't figure this mess out. I don't know what to do, Lord. And he says, not by might, not by power. By my Spirit. Keep this this lampstand picture in your mind for when life gets hard because what Zechariah sees is an endless supply of the golden oil. An endless supply of the Holy Spirit. Never ending. God doesn't give you His Spirit and then pull back. He doesn't anoint you with gifts, callings, and anointings and then say, I'm going to have to turn off the spigot for a while and let you dry out. 
The oil of the Spirit of God is always, it's constant. It flows and flows and flows like a fresh olive tree pouring into the bowl, pouring into the lampstand. That's the beautiful picture that's that's being seen here. Now you might say, okay, but wait, if I'm comparing this prophecy with what John talks about in the Revelation, John talks about two olive trees. Okay, there are two olive trees in Zechariah 4. But John also says, and the two lampstands. But there's only one lampstand here. Why does Revelation speak of two each? Skip down to verse 11 of Zechariah 4. And then I said to him, Zechariah speaking, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches that are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? And so he answered me saying, note this, watch this, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. By the way, why does he keep saying that? Do you not know what these are? He keeps saying, you know, he knows, he knows that Zachariah doesn't know. Just like John doesn't know, which is why John keeps asking. And yet he keeps saying, don't you know what these are? Don't you know what these are? Don't you know what, you know what he's doing? He's tapping into Zachariah's curiosity and he's drawing out faith. This is what God does with us. Don't you know this? Well, no, Lord. Tell me. Well, I tell you, but don't you know? I want to know until we're at the point where we are totally ready to receive. And that's where Zechariah is at this point. Now, I, I want to know. I've got to know. And he says in verse 14, watch this. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Anointed ones, it's a great phrase, the bene yitshar. These are the bene yitshar. These are the two sons of oil. The sons of oil. Now, practically speaking, these sons of oil were an encouraging picture for Zerubbabel and Joshua. But prophetically, these two anointed ones could not be Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard teaching on Zechariah 4 before. Perhaps you have in this place. But let me explain to you that Zerubbabel and Joshua are not the two olive trees. Nor are they the two lampstands. They are being encouraged that the Holy Spirit of the living God is being poured into them in the same way that they see the Spirit poured into the lampstand in this vision. But they are not the olive trees and they are not the Bene Yetshar. They are not the sons of oil. How do you know that? Because in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. They're standing by the Lord. They're not the ones standing for the Lord on the earth. They're, by, they're, all, they're already with the Lord. Get what I'm saying? That these two represented in this early prophecy, this prophecy is about the two witnesses who at this time were standing by the Lord. They're already there. Two men who somehow made their way from earth to heaven and now in Zechariah's day, 500, 600 years actually before John is writing the Revelation, in Zechariah's day, these two anointed ones are standing by the Lord, waiting to be dispatched, as we shall see. John gives us, and you can go back to Revelation 11, 
He gives us the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Zerubbabel and Joshua are not the fulfillment. They're the recipients of the encouragement that the Spirit of God is constant in its flow. That God doesn't stop giving of Himself. But they're not the two olive trees. They're not the two lampstands. These two are standing by the Lord. Who are they? Revelation 11, verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. (laughs) These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike every earth or strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire two witnesses note their powers and let's consider them for a minute witness number 1 and i believe with a high degree of certainty we know who witness number 1 is and that is elijah that this is Elijah, not some form of Elijah, not some variant or symbolically. This is Elijah himself who shows up, one of the two witnesses at the beginning of the tribulation period, and for 1260 days is prophesying out of Jerusalem. Elijah the prophet. Why do you think so, Rick? Well, because Elijah wielded the power of fire. For one thing, look at the miracles that are done here. First Kings chapter 18, we see Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember the story? Beautiful Mount Carmel there in Israel, you know, looming up above the Mediterranean, and he's up there, squared off against the 400 prophets of Baal. And he says, I'll tell you what, let, let's set up altars here. You set up your altar and you cry out to your God, and I'll set up an altar and I'll cry out to my God, and let's see what he does. And so they start to cry out to their God. They set up their altar. They, they cut up, they, they do all the, put the wood around, and, and then they, they begin to cry out that their God would bring fire from heaven. Nothing happens. All day long. It just goes on and on. And, and Elijah, it's great. He begins to taunt them. You know the story? Well, maybe your God's taking a nap. <laughs> maybe he's in the bathroom with a magazine. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm stretching it a little bit, but he does say maybe he's indisposed. You know, and the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and they're jumping around and leaping and nothing. And then Elijah says, well, let me give it a shot. And he builds his altar and he digs a trench and he fills the trench with tons of water and pours the water all over the altar and God sends fire from heaven and licks up everything until the trench is bone dry, the altar is burned up, and the sacrifice is gone. Power of fire. When Ahaziah, son of Ahab, king of northern Israel, sent two different captains with squads of 50 soldiers each to arrest Elijah, (laughs) he called down fire from heaven and fried them all. Can you even imagine? Here comes a company of 50 soldiers and their captain. Give yourself up, Elijah. They're gone. Second set of 50 comes up. Captain says, give yourself up, Elijah. They're gone. Third set of 50 come up. And their captain says, please, please don't fire us. And so he goes with them. Power of fire. As we see with these witnesses, we also read of... Well, Elijah's departure from this earth in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, you know how he went out, riding up on a fiery chariot ride to heaven. Uber can't provide that. I was thinking maybe Lyft could. You know, Lyft, 
<laughs> because he goes. So he goes up in a fiery chariot. Wow. What else did Elijah have the power of? He had power to stop up the rain. First Kings chapter 17 and 18, he prayed that the sky would not give rain, and it didn't. Anyone remember, remember how long? Three and a half years. Huh, 1260 days. That's interesting. James chapter 5 verse 17 says, and note this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, just like you. Just like me. Powerful, awesome, great Elijah. He was just like you. He was just anointed by God for a task. But no different than you, no different than me. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Half the length of the tribulation. Same time frame. And note that this guy who was just like you did this mighty work. How? He prayed. Which is James' point. Yaakov's point. He's making the point there in, in the fifth chapter of his book that look, pray. Pray. If you're sick, pray. Got a problem? Pray. Need some help? Call on the elders to pray. Elijah was no different than you, but he prayed and look what happened. So pray and trust the Lord to bring his strength. Add to all of that information about Elijah, the fact that he never died, and you have a compelling case that after having been caught up in that fiery chariot, that this is one of the two witnesses. In fact, a century after he was caught up, God spoke through the prophet Malachi, saying in Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's a very specific prophecy. This happened a hundred years after Elijah was out of the, out of the area, off the scene. I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. You know, so if you were wondering which Elijah he's talking about, <laughs> no question. I'm going to send him. But you know what we do? We allegorize. How many times, how many of you have heard in perhaps a church somewhere at some point that, well, Elijah's John the Baptist. Right? That's, he's the Elijah. But Malachi didn't say, I'm going to send one like Elijah. God said through Malachi, I am going to send Elijah the prophet to you before the day of the Lord. I'm going to send him. Well, how does that work? The the angel came to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, in Luke chapter 1 verse 17, and said, it is he who will go as a forerunner before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. The angel didn't tell Zacharias, J the B's dad, he didn't say, oh, and by the way, your son John is the Elijah. He said he's going to go in the same kind of spirit, with the same power of an Elijah. He, he's going to personify him, but he didn't say he's him. Listen to this, Matthew 17. And you can turn there or just listen to the story. They're coming down from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Bible students, remember the story. Jesus goes up on the mount. Peter, James, and John are with him. And as they're there, 
getting a little snoozy, which they did all the time. Jesus goes a ways up further and He's transfigured before them. And His, his clothing becomes as white, as, as light and so bright. And they're talking to Him. Are who? Elijah. Elijah and, and Moses. That should be a hint to you right there. So Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus and there's this amazing scene. Peter sees this and, and, and James and John see this and then Jesus comes back down to them and they start making their way down the mountain. So they're thinking about what they've just seen and in Matthew 17, verse 9, it says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? (laughs) We just saw him. Which I think is really cool that they saw Elijah and Moses and they knew who it was. That also should inform us about what it's going to be like in heaven. Will we know each other? Yes. We will know each other. How? We will. We'll, We'll know each other spirit to spirit. We will understand. And Peter, who had never seen Moses or Elijah in the flesh, saw them talking to Jesus and said, oh, let's, let's build three booths here. One for Moses, and one for you, Jesus, and one for Elijah. He knew who they were. So why does Elijah come first, they asked. And Jesus answered and said, Elijah, note this, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Man, these words, it's mystery stuff. You know, Jesus, he is coming, but he already came, Jesus said. And so Jesus implies that John was Elijah. John said that he wasn't. Well, that's another passage. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is the testimony of John, the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, Nope. (laughs) Not me. No, I'm not Elijah. Okay, so Jesus said he was. John said he's not. Listen again to Malachi 4. Behold, I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Malachi says specifically, Elijah would come as a forerunner of judgment, not as a forerunner of grace. John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah came as a forerunner of of grace, Jesus' first coming. So in that way, he's like Elijah, but he is not Elijah. And again, in Jesus' words, and he said it clearly, Elijah is coming. The Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came. The implication, John the Baptist and the spirit and power of Elijah, that's already happened, but Elijah is coming. Jesus covers both grounds. And makes it very clear from Jesus' perspective, there is a day coming, yet future, when Elijah is going to show up on the earth. Revelation chapter 11. First of the two witnesses, it is Elijah. And he's testifying there in Jerusalem. Well, how about witness number two? Well, we already have the hint from the transfiguration. I absolutely believe it's Moses, but this one is much more argued by people. 
I think we're seeing Moses and Elijah in Jerusalem prophesying for 1260 days. And some say, well, it can't be Moses. Why? Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It can't be Moses because he died, and, and after that comes judgment, right? He's done. Elijah never died, so Elijah has to die. Therefore, it makes sense for Elijah to come back so he can die, and then comes judgment. Moses already died. And since Moses already died, he doesn't need to. Why would he come back? And people will argue this, and so they will suggest another raptured prophet, Enoch. Because Enoch and Elijah, these, and some of you may even, this may be your theology, it's Enoch and Elijah. Because Elijah never died, went up in the fiery chariot. Enoch never died. Genesis chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 11, they both, he was raptured. So he never died. So these two never died. It's got to be the two non-died guys. Enoch. Hmm. Now I like Enoch. Enoch rocks. He's cool. I want to meet him. I want to get to know him. First guy raptured. Amazing. But Enoch didn't have the power to turn the waters to blood, did he? Enoch didn't deal in plagues, did he? It's only one prophet of Israel who had a handle on all of that. And that prophet is Moses. You also got to factor in some other things about Moses. Like there's a really strange debate that takes place. We got a one verse picture of it in Jude verse 9. Jude's little letter, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, Jude's reason for adding that is just to say, man, those who revile angelic authorities, man, they don't know what they're doing. Show some respect, you know. But, but in this, we get this picture that there was an argument that took place between Michael and Satan. And the argument was over the body of Moses. That's weird. Why would the devil want the body of Moses? Maybe so he could never come back. Maybe to shut the mouth of a witness to keep him from returning. And I can almost guarantee you Satan at some point had studied Zechariah chapter 4. Had some sense of what God might be doing. And listen, even though death is appointed and then judgment, there's an entire generation of the raptured church that will not die whose judgment took place 2,000 years ago at the cross of Jesus Christ. So yes, the standard is it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. That's the appointment, but that's not the way grace works. God says, I want to I take that appointment off the books. I want to save you at the cross. And some of you, if you're alive at the time of my coming, you're never going to die. You will never die. That thrills me. What a cool thought. So it's not just... Elijah, who was caught up in a fiery chariot, or Enoch. See, Enoch is a picture of the raptured church, a picture of those who will go up and will never taste death, and there will be many. And I'm planning on being one of them. Although as the years tick by, it's getting a little more dicey. So I don't believe it's Enoch. Again, I believe we're talking about Moses, and these, Revelation chapter 11, you can go back there, these are the days of Elijah. And Moses. 
And they're the ones prophesying. And furthermore, go back to the transfiguration, the summit, that man, that prophecy summit with Jesus. What a great conference. Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they're up there talking. To Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. And by the way, in Luke chapter 9, we find out what they were talking about. If you ever wondered, Luke 9, verse 30, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were encouraging Jesus. Wow. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, encouraging Jesus, sharing with him. Elijah, Israel's greatest prophet. Moses, Israel's great lawgiver. But, but, of the three of them, John 1.17 tells us, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so when Peter pipes up and says, Lord, it's good that we're here. We should build tents, sukkahs. One for each of you to, to honor you. He blurts this out. And of course, a voice comes out of the cloud, Luke 9.35, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But what I'm saying in all this here in Revelation chapter 11 is for 1260 days, the world will listen to them talking about him. Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being a Jew in Jerusalem or really anywhere on the planet at the time listening to the Christ-centered prophecies of Moses and Elijah live-streaming around the globe 24-7? Realizing who it is. Recognizing what they're saying as they weave together all of the Hebrew prophecies pointing to one absolutely unequivocal conclusion that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19 verse 10. And 144,000 Jewish evangelists have fanned out throughout the world and they're preaching the gospel. No wonder all Israel's going to get saved. No wonder Jews on the planet at the time will come to amazing faith in Jesus Christ because these two sons of oil who in Zechariah's day were standing by the Lord are now sent down and are speaking these prophetic truths of Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ. In a way that, man, Jewish people can embrace from their two greatest prophets. Well, the two witnesses are also, as I said, martus, martyrs, and they will be. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and will kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That tells us exactly where they are. They're in Jerusalem, where the Lord was crucified. He was crucified just outside the city gate, to the north of the city, there at Golgotha. Where the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, no question. And John, note this, three things about it. He calls it the great city. Everywhere else in Revelation, when he says the great city, he's talking about Babylon. So when he calls Jerusalem the great city, he's not doing it as a compliment here. He's describing what's going on in Jerusalem. It is akin to Babylon. 
the great city. Perhaps because of its close ties also with Antichrist. And then he says, mystically, it's called Sodom and Egypt. Mystically, the the word there is pneumatikos. Spiritually. I don't even know why they say mystically, but it's, it's spiritually called Sodom, spiritually called Egypt. Why Sodom? Because Jerusalem at the time will be morally depraved. You know, something started taking place in Jerusalem in 2006, I believe it was, the first time. The World Gay Pride March. Not in Tel Aviv. See, Jews today will say, you go to Tel Aviv to play, you go to Jerusalem to pray. You would expect a march like that to take place in Tel Aviv, not Jerusalem. But 2006, the annual march for the LGBTQRS community happens in Jerusalem. It's called Sodom. And the name fits. Isaiah prophesied, and the Lord through Isaiah called Jerusalem back then Sodom. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah, because of the depravity that was going on. Spiritually, it's also Egypt, he says here. Spiritually, Egypt. Why Egypt? Because once again, the people of God are in captivity. They're enslaved in Jerusalem of all places. Especially the closer we get to this midpoint. And we are at, by the way, the midpoint when they have finished their testimony. Because he said they will testify, they will prophesy for 1260 days. Testimony's done and they're killed. In Jerusalem, at the midpoint of the tribulation, in this place now called Sodom and Egypt... And note this also, the one who kills them is the beast that comes up out of the abyss. This is the first of 36 references to the beast in the book of Revelation. So you're going to be hearing a lot about the beast or variants of the beast, for there's the beast that comes out of the sea and there's the beast that comes from the land. We'll get to them in chapter 13. This is a beast... The beast that comes up out of the abyss. What exactly does that mean? Look back at chapter 9, verse 11. Remember we read about the the abyss, the abuso, the bottomless pit. How it was opened up when the fifth trumpet was blown, the first woe, and out came those demon locusts. And it says in verse 11 of Revelation 9, they have as king over them, the angel of the abyss. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. It means destroyer. This king of the demons of the abyss. And John tells us that this is the very one who kills the two witnesses. He's the one who kills Moses and Elijah takes them down after their testimony is finished, makes war with them, overcomes them. The beast that comes out of the abyss. Who is this? Well, I have two options for you, and beyond this, I don't know. Either this beast is simply the killing agent of the Antichrist, or Antichrist is Apollyon. Antichrist himself is Abaddon. He is the king of the demons who come out of the abyss. He is the angel of those demons. The leader, if you will. Could go either way. Charles Feinberg says, an indignity of immense proportions happens here, especially in the Middle East, that their bodies lie out on the street 
for three days. Just lie there bloating and steaming and dying or dead. I mean, this, this is horrible, horrible indignity. And Feinberg says, with satanic cunning and deception, the beast has won over the masses to his position. How do we know that? Verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. And how long is the three and a half days? It's three and a half days. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) They will look at their bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will sing gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. How did they torment them? They kept asking them to repent. Don't tell me about Jesus anymore. Stop telling me to confess my sin and repent to become a Christian like you. Leave me alone. Oh, it's just torment. It is when you have a heart that's rebelling against the Lord. And so they give each other gifts. This is anti-Christmas. They're passing them around and celebrating and, and enjoying this. It's ridiculous. It shows us that their treatment of the dead bodies of the two witnesses shows us the total depravity on the planet at the time and it also signals the death of all hope. Verse 11, But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet (laughs) and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Can you imagine? Three and a half days. They're done. They're wasted. We're finally... Up they stand. I, 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 I would love to watch that. I won't be there. I'd love to see this. Maybe we can get someone to take some video and bring it to have it show us later. But I would love to see, you know, people with their iPhones going, ah, as they stand up. And I don't know what they're going to do. Can you imagine? Looking at each other. You know, and what happens after that? <laughs> they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Why? Because that's what God says when He's about to rapture people. Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. They go from utter indecency and indignity to honor. As God lifts them up right in front of the whole watching world, and everyone's watching. And again, this whole thing is going to be live streamed. It's the great thing about Revelation is that it tells us about things before they could possibly have happened. Back in the early 90s, this couldn't have happened. How could the whole world watch this take place? How could people, verse 9, from tribes and tongues and nations look at their dead bodies for three and a half? How can you do that? Well, we can now. Just turn on your TV. You can see anywhere in the world. We just watch it taking place. Well, people have been studying this for 2,000 years. We've just figured out how to live stream stuff. Amazing. But they are lifted up in the sight of all people, raptured. It's just awesome. And verse 13 says, And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Hang on just a second right there. The greatest fault line on planet Earth is called the Great Rift Valley. It runs straight through Israel, down into North Africa. At the the Kotel, which is the western wall there in Jerusalem, of the Temple Mount, there's a long tunnel. 
Some of you have been in that tunnel. It's called the rabbi's tunnel. And you go in that shaft, you, you follow it down, and it runs alongside, and you can see the, the base stones of the temple. Huge stones, massive. It's amazing to walk through there and see all of that. What's interesting about that tunnel is it runs directly under the Muslim quarter of the old city. They realized when, when they excavated and, and moved under there, they realized that the Muslim quarter is exactly one-tenth of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if there's a parallel there, but we read here that a tenth of the city fell. I don't know if it's just the old city. I'm assuming probably more. Probably a tenth of all of Jerusalem right now that's sprawled out over the mountains there in the heights of Israel. But note this, that at that time of this massive earthquake... No one's going to wonder with whether or not God was upset with their treatment of the two witnesses. As they are raised to life and raptured for everybody to see, and then here comes this massive quake. 7,000 people will die. But note this, it's not just 7,000 people. In the Greek, it, it reads 7,000 named people. 7,000 named people. Are we talking dignitaries? Politicians? Well, then it wouldn't be such a great loss. Uh, Celebrities? (laughs) 7,000 known people dead in this earthquake in Jerusalem. And the rest, those who survived, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And i got to point this out. They react with fear and worship but not worship from a changed heart, simply worship of the terrified. So yes, they worship God in that moment. They recognize the the power of God, but it's not a worship of a heart that loves God. It's a worship of a heart that is absolutely scared to death of God. And then verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third one is coming quickly. So here we are, midpoint. Antichrist has revealed himself. The two witnesses are slain. Jerusalem has this wild earthquake. And now on the precipice between the second and the third woe, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, we are staring into the final 42 months. The time, times, and half a time of the great tribulation. One last thought tonight. When were the two witnesses killed? It may seem an obvious question. You would say at the midpoint of the tribulation. Rick, look at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony. When they have finished their testimony. Not a minute before. Witnesses of Jesus Christ. This, this is a great truth. Please don't miss this. We will not go before we're through. We will not leave this earth until our testimony is finished. When your testimony is finished, you're not going to stay around here a moment longer. And that should tell you something. Every one of us here tonight, this this tells us something. We're here tonight. Our testimony is not finished. We're not through. 
We still must prophesy again. We still have people to tell. We still have the Word of the Lord to share in this world. Our testimony is not done. How do you know? Because if it was done, we would be gone. We would be finished. Another way to look at this is that we are invincible until invited by God to depart. How do you know that, Rick? Well, because Jeff survived a bike accident and lived to tell the tale. (laughs) Cracked up his hip, and he's back on his bike again. He knows he's invincible. Until the testimony is finished, my friend. (laughs) We're called to tell. We run the race until the race is done. We confess Christ until He calls us home. And Jesus said in Matthew 10.32, Therefore, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. And you might say, but Rick, I, I get that. And I hear you all the time saying, we've got to talk about Jesus. We've got to share Jesus. We have the bitter belly. We've got to get it out. I, I hear that over and over. I don't know how to do that. Not by might. Not by power. But by My Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Same Lord, who never stops giving the flow of His Spirit. Father, I pray that You would pour out more of Your Spirit again tonight. Over us, into us, upon us. Saturate us, Lord, with the golden oil of Your Spirit. Make us bold and brave, Lord. Willing to speak the truth. Fill us, Father, with the joy of the Lord and the hopeful expectation of seeing Jesus. And with all of this, Lord, just lead out. Lead out. We know, we know now that like the two witnesses, we will be here as long as you need us to be here. And then we get to come home. So I pray, Lord, you would make us like the two witnesses, those who testify and don't stop until we're through. We praise You, Lord. We thank You for Your Word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen.